I'm Sean. I'm Laura. And I'm Alice. We're a theatre company of three, telling stories around the whole country. But now we're stuck at home, with just a microphone. Welcome to Stories from the... Wait. Okay. One, two, three, four... Welcome to Stories from the Sticks, brought to you by Scratchworks Theatre Company. Whilst we can't be on the road, we're bringing stories from the road to you. Episode 3, Sydney and Tony. Hello! So, episode Hello. 3! <laughs> episode 3, lucky number 3. Woohoo! Ooh. How are you guys doing? Good. Bit of a cloudy day. Yeah. Yeah. The clouds of lockdown. But I've got another tea and I'm not sweaty, so for me, Good. You're this a is a plus. Sweaty tea. You're wearing a jumper today. I am. You couldn't be any less sweaty. I've got peppermint tea, a jumper. I'm loving life. Nice. <laughs> living the, the super podcast life. And a lockdown dream. So what are we rambling about today, guys? We decided that our pre-ramble is going to be a dedication to the animals of rural touring. We've just met so many of them and they've all been so amazing. Across the years, we've had dogs, cats, amphibians, reptiles. There's been... Birds. <laughs> Some birds. <laughs> oh, yeah, birds. Farm animals, probably. Um, but one of the the days that will always be really memorable for me is when we went to Wells. We performed at Lovely Wells Festival. And the smallest city in England. Yes, with a very big cathedral. <laughs> and lots of uh, talk of... Uh, Hot fuzz. Hot fuzz. Oh, yeah, the you hot fuzz. Take the hot town. fuzz tour. Yeah. Mm. Iconic. But as we were there, what was her name who put us up? Was her name Claire? Pass. I want to say Joe. Don't include that bit. The cut lovely and woman. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> and when we were there, our host for the day was a puppy breeder. I'm not lying. She had, I think, seven cockapoo puppies in her house. So many little fluffy golden puppies. And she was like, oh, well, you could just have a wander around Wells. Or we we do have seven puppies if you want to go play with them at our house. (laughs) And we were like, well, we know exactly where we're going right now. We didn't get off the floor for ages. (laughs) No. And that's what we did. We went and bathed in puppies. Oh, that sounds dark. No, we didn't. <laughs> oh, that sounds really grim. We didn't bathe in puppies. We didn't bathe in the puppies. <laughs> we played with the puppies. Even it Alice. Was a puppy pile was up. A, it was a puppy. Oh, yeah. There's a really funny picture where I'd just been handed a puppy and I'm kind of holding it awkwardly like, what do I do? <laughs> you I'm did not it. the biggest animal lover. I feel like we're easing it out of you. In like yeah. five years' time, you're going to be like Dr. Doolittle. As long as it's not a hairless yeah. cat, we're fine. Oh my God, no hairless <laughs> cats. And there um, was that time with the kitchen full of cats, which <laughs> was delightful that was for absolutely us. absolutely that? terrifying. <laughs> that was in Salisbury. I was, in oh, Salisbury. I was terrified. There were about eight cats in sitting on the kitchen counter of this 
dark kitchen and as I turned on the light they were all staring at me it's like something out of a horror movie Alice we were um, we were in our bedroom and Alice came upstairs and was like can you guys come downstairs to the kitchen there are loads of cats <laughs> what about the um, sausage dogs what the, what's their real name no, Dashens. Oh, Dashens in um, Six Penny Handley. I was trying to think of their names <gasps> oh, and I couldn't they remember called? them. They were so good. They brought them in especially because we were like, oh my gosh, dogs. She like drove down with them when we were mid-rehearsal. So brought them. Um, and brought them in and then oh, we had so a little cuddle cute. at the house and then I had a little panic because I thought one of them had, had eaten a... Eaten the chocolate like a, digestives. Chocolate digestives yeah. and I had a real... Had a real little panic about it and was like, dogs don't eat chocolate. Um, he'd been it'd been really sneaky and sneaked into one of the girls' bags. Uh, but he was fine. He, just he was all right. Rubs. Oh. So if there's any <laughs> any rural touring venues out there um, who'd, like, who'd like to put us up and happen to have dogs, um, I, I, I can be a performer and also a very good dog sitter. We also had baby-like turtles this when we were in um dorset what sean you and i that was with the, baby tur- <gasps> with the little baby turtles it was literally like our last show before lockdown that was there was a dog and there was also they had this like tank with and they were like oh do you want to hold the turtles i'm like yes we do <laughs> that must have been corf castle I think it was. It I think was. it was Corf Castle. Yeah, yeah, it was Corf Castle. Yeah. Had these two, and it's because the the full grown turtles were just out chilling in the shed. That's where they hibernated. Yeah. But they had these yeah. little baby ones just in the, the little heater next to it. Yeah, it yeah. oh, oh, was so cute. We got to hold them and. Oh. So who's up today? It's me, Sean. <laughs> and what are you doing, Sean? <laughs> Who are you chatting to? Uh, I have been chatting to Sydney and Tony from Malmesbury. Hello. You're listening to the sweet tones of Shan this week. <laughs> Today we take a historical walk through the town of Malmesbury in Wiltshire, a place that seems to have more stories than a brother's grim fairy tale book, where we meet fellow theatre maker and very enthusiastic Malmesbury local, Sydney, who grew up, moved away, and then came right back again. We've never actually been to Malmesbury, but I've come very close, touring to the Pound Art Centre in Corsham, which is only a few miles away. They kindly put us in touch with Sydney through her work at the community radio station and their youth theatre. Although we haven't been to Malmesbury, since chatting to Sydney and local historian Tony, who you'll meet later on in this episode, they paint a pretty clear picture, full of light, bubbly personalities honest interactions and vibrant stories that sit on the blurred line between fanciful hearsay and history. Essentially, Malmesbury, if you're listening, and if you'll have us, we'll be there as soon as we can tour again. But right now, here's Sydney. So, first of all, Sydney, could you just describe for our listeners, uh, where you are. Just give them a a picture of where you are right now. So I'm in um, my kitchen in my house um, and the house is on the lower high street of the town and it's called the Dolls House. And I would say it's officially the smallest house in Malmesbury, which is why it's called the Dolls House. 
And it's a great size for me being about five foot five, but Tristan's about um, six foot tall. So he has to bend over all the time. So I'm in the kitchen. Um, I'm looking at a wall. I don't have a great view, but to my left is the window looking out onto the garden. And then the garden goes down to a little stream. So that's a very nice view. And if I was sensible, I'd put the table there looking out onto the garden rather than at the wall. <laughs> is it, have you been able to do much, do you do much gardening or is that kind of just been? So I, this is being honest, I am not very good at gardening because I don't like slugs, toads, worms and snails. <laughs> um, so gardening is quite challenging for me. Um, but my mum normally does the gardening here, which is a bit embarrassing to tell everyone, but she does. And she's made it really pretty, the garden. So while she hasn't been, she hasn't been coming over to do any gardening, obviously. So we've been doing the gardening under strict instructions and I've gotten a bit better at doing it through a silly way of doing things which is counting doing 10 digs without looking with a spade and then doing what you need to do and then putting the plant in closing your eyes don't look if you've chopped a worm in half don't look if there are any centipedes is it you just really squirmish with them I'm yeah really squirmish oh Oh god yeah then yeah that's that's difficult especially if there's been lots of rain and stuff like that yeah yeah so does your mum live nearby then is she in the same town as you exactly my parents live about well depending on how fast you walk five or seven minutes walk away um, at the other side of town which is really nice so we see them well we usually see them uh every couple of days and then we've been doing shopping for them during the lockdown and stuff but they've just started going out a little bit they got a letter that they were allowed to go out as long as they social distanced but for a while, but were they, they originally under the, if you don't mind me asking, were yeah. they originally under the kind of high risk? Yeah, exactly. My dad has mild asthma. So he got a letter saying, don't go out at all. And then a couple of weeks ago, they get said one, got one saying, you can go out as long as you're super careful. But then, which has been nice because now they're going on like little bike rides and walks and things. Oh, nice. Um, and it's my birthday in a couple of weeks time. And we were trying to think, could we have a picnic I think picnics are allowed now we could have a picnic in one or other of our gardens Mm. but we we didn't know whether you're allowed to have food or whether it's sensible to have food prepared by other people or if it's better just to have food prepared for yourself yeah if you don't lick your spoon the spoon if you're making a cake or Mm. (laughs) something like that yeah Yeah. no double dipping in the in yeah yeah exactly How did you start the community radio and how did it all begin? The idea came from Dan because he used to um, do community radio when he was at college. And then in the classic way of of councils, current councils, well, potentially austerity councils, they might be referred to now. um, They said, all right, we're going to cut the radio budget for the college and we need somewhere to store all this kit. And his teacher said, listen, they're going to put the, the kit in a black hole cupboard. No one's going to see this radio kit again. Why don't you take it, Dan? You really enjoy doing the radio. Have it. So that was super nice of the teacher. So a few years after Dan had sort of inherited it from Wiltshire College, we got the kit. We said to everyone, right, we're going to do community radio in Malmesbury in conjunction with Malmesbury Carnival, which happens in August. It will be really fun. We'll chat to people like, are you having jam or cream first all silly things like what are you dressed up as in the procession are you feeling sick after your ride 
try and publicize the events that happen in the town. Like, I don't know, there might be a band or something, chat to the band and broadcast their music. So we said to everyone, we told everyone, we're going to do it, it's going to happen. But then we came to set up the equipment and none of the equipment worked at all. The, the sound desk was from 1992. <laughs> so it was, it was really stressful. We didn't know that all the, we'd said to everyone we were going to do it, none of the kit worked. So then we had this like mad scramble for kit and borrowed it from people and we got the radio working and, and that was probably in 2017. And then we've been doing it once, once or twice a year for short duration periods since then. Is it something that you think you'd like to carry on doing after lockdown? Like keep it going as a regular thing? Or do you think, because it sounds like it takes up a lot of your time as well. Yeah, it takes up a huge amount of time. So I think it feels like it uses up my generosity. I didn't realise generosity had a sort of finite line, Mm. but I feel like the radio uses it up to that line um, and you're sort of operating at maximum capacity all the time. It's a huge, beautiful community project. We've done a couple of radio workshops with young people and that's been really fun, like setting up so you can make your own DJ set that then gets played out and you can listen to it at home. Oh, great. Of, so really fun and jolly. So I'd like to do those with it and I'd love to do it in a in an empty shop and maybe there's going to be plenty of those in the high street <laughs> in the future. So yeah. I'd love to do, yeah, like a, a take over a shop front and be really visible with it and have people come in and say like, Oh, what do you what do you got in your shop? So they've got a discount and co-op. Right, everyone get your tomatoes. That kind of um, silly visibleness, I think, would be really fun. But I think probably the thing that I enjoy most is having, having an excuse to contact lots of people. And, and really, I think that's what it is. It's like, um, it, it really doesn't matter what goes on the radio. It's really the process of being in contact with lots of other people and together making something. I think that's the the thing that I like most. And I should confess that I really love Malmesbury. And I'd really love to figure out- It could have been a worse confession there. kind of embarrassing because it's not very trendy to love where you grew up like most people are oh yeah in it getting out of there <laughs> and, and and I love it and every day I lived away from from Marjorie for 12 years which I thought was pretty I'm pretty proud that I managed to do it but every day I was homesick so it's just I'm so glad that we've moved back and that we live here now a real pleasure that it means is when you can when we are able to go on holiday or visit places again I can go somewhere else, but know that I can come back is the nicest thing about it. And because we used to live in France and we lived in London, so all the holidays were taken coming home. Mm. And now it's a treat to be able to like, oh, we'll go somewhere else and then come back. It's really nice. That's lovely. What, what is it that you love so much about Malmesbury? I, oh, I love lots of things. I love, I love the community. That's for sure the best thing. I love that we know lots and lots of people in the town. And um, I love that, um, I know some the older folks in the town, the people who are my generation, and then lots of the people who are my generation are having children, and we know all those people. And I love, I love like the sparrow colony quality of the town, um, th- which could be nosiness, but in a way, it's just sort of wanting to, like we were saying, stay in contact and like, oh, what's she doing? Oh no, she, she hasn't had she yet. She's gone and got the only tomato of tomatoes in 
in co-op, oh no, never. Have you got any tomatoes? Yeah, I have. Here, do you want some tomatoes? That kind of thing. Mm. So I love the sort of low level of gossip that happens all the time. I love that my parents are here and friends friends from school are here. And and I also love the history the history of the town. And I think the the, the fact that everybody knows about this flying monk story really makes a shared narrative in the town so you all know I come from the town of the flying monk can you you've said it now so can you please tell us about the flying monk okay (laughs) so I was thinking I'm probably going to be a propagator of uh, untrue history so apologies for that but in uh, at some point in the past it could have been the 8th century or the 9th century or the 10th century or the 11th century there was a man called Elmer uh, who was a monk and he was a monk in the Abbey of Malmesbury. Elmer, for some reason, thought he wanted to, to fly. And as far as I understand, that was probably quite a radical thing to think at the time, because flying was the domain of the birds and God was in the heavens. And you shouldn't go as a human up into God's territory. But I think at the time, it was a point when there were lots of invasions from Denmark coming into to England from the east. Mm. So it was a time of chaos. And maybe there wasn't that much control over what was going on in the monks in the abbey. So he got permission from the chief monk, I don't know what his name was, to make his, his outfit and to try and fly. And he made himself a structure of wings. And actually, there's a drawing, I think, by Leonardo da Vinci of Elmer with wings um and he had so as if you were putting out your arms and you built like a trellis structure under your under your arms with canvas strapped to it and then he he jumped from the top of the tower in Malmesbury and and Malmesbury used to have the biggest the highest tower in all of England it was taller than Salisbury Cathedral though the, the tower um so he jumped off that and he flew for a couple of miles um, down to the bottom of the hill, maybe it was a mile, or maybe it was a furlong. It was a furlong, I think. He flew a furlong, and then he crash-landed. And he thought, it was pretty good. It was pretty, he was pretty pleased with that. He got quite far. And he thought the problem was he didn't have a tail. And we've been watching baby blackbirds um, in our garden recently, and they're really slow and really ungainly, and I realised they don't have tails. The mummy and daddy blackbirds do have tails, but the babies don't. So, I mean, maybe he was right. Maybe he really needed a tail because you get on a plane, you talk about tail lift. So I think it might really help with the aerodynamics. Yeah, the the keeping you um, afloat, I suppose, keeping you up. Yeah, yeah. So then he built a second set. He had a second go with the tail this time. He jumped off a second time, but this time he crash landed and he broke both his legs. And that was kind of the end of his flying career. But he survived it. I think he survived it, but I imagine that if you broke both your legs potentially at that time, you might not have been able to stay around for very long. Yeah. That's incredible though. I love, I love the kind of the gumption of he does it once and goes, that was all right. I can do it better. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Sydney then told me I should probably check the facts with Malmesbury's local historian, Tony McAlevey. So I did. Elmer the Flying Monk. Yep. He sounded like a character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, I'd love to hear hear kind of your account of what you know about his story. Elmer is sometimes seen as a bit of a joke, uh, 
Elm of the Flying Monk sounds like you know like a circus act and um, sometimes dismissed as a legend who was this flying monk that surely that's not possible um, but actually it appears to be true that at the, at the beginning of the 11th century uh, a monk of Malmesbury constructed some sort of hang glider and threw himself off the tower of the abbey and flew for a while before he landed and broke his legs. And the, the reason we know this story is because William of Malmesbury, a famous historian, tells the story in his History of the Kings of England. And he's actually telling the story of the Battle of Hastings in 1066. And he just mentions this as a sort of little footnote, this, this tale of Elmer. It, it seems believable because uh, William was a, a monk in Malmesbury Abbey and he joined in the 1090s. And he's writing about a monk who seems to have been around and perhaps died in the 1060s. So William will have known older men who knew Elmer. And William was a serious historian. I mean, he didn't just tell stories. I mean, he did tell some quite interesting stories, but uh, he, was, he was very serious uh, as a historian. So there's no reason to think it's not true. Sydney had mentioned that he flew twice. Or is that something you can't confirm? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think we, we know this. Um, I, the, the account of William of Malmesbury just has him flying once. He, he, must, have, he must have practised. Um, <laughs> You'd hope so. <laughs> and, and I think one of the things that intrigues me is how, why he was permitted to do this crazy thing. Because we've got the books of rules for the monks of the period, and they're incredibly strict. You know, their day is mapped out, and they're supposed to spend most of their time either, you know, in church, in the services, or in the cloister doing their, uh, their intellectual work. They're not supposed to be making hang gliders and jumping off towers. So that interests me, but I think I can only find uh, an account of one flight. My own theory as to why he was permitted to do it is that actually um, when he did it, which must have been around the year 1010, around about then, uh, there was chaos um, because the, uh, the Vikings had come back and, and were around here, actually, and there was a sort of breakdown of order. And in the middle of the chaos, I love this idea of, Elmer thinking, ah, right, this is my chance to in, in, in indulge in my little project and uh, have a go at making, making a hang glider. So that's my, my theory. But no, he only, according to William, did this once and then he broke his legs. William says that he reflected that he got the design wrong, that he needed, he should have included some sort of tail, that the tail wasn't uh, good enough and that's why he broke yeah, that, that's what Sydney mentioned about the tail. She said the second time round he tried it with a tail and that's what he Oh, right, okay, no. But no. It's, it's really interesting to hear, hear the history, factual bit, and then also how stories <laughs> kind of developed when they're like passed around communities. That's really nice. And there's a song, if you're interested, mm. there's a song by a woman called Rosie Hood that Martin from the Pound showed me about Elmer, the flying monk. So if you're interested, I could send you, it, well, it's on Spotify, so I could just email you the name of the song, but it might be, it might be really nice. No, that sounds perfect. That sounds really lovely. Oh, the wind inspired my fall from grace Too soon my wings they brought me low Now altered always from my bed To live in Halley's glow But the jack Mock me, join our chorus, hands to 
Furlong of Flight by award-winning English folk singer Rosie Hood. You'd also mentioned to me about the Tamworth 2. How old were you when that happened? Well I was trying to figure it out and I think I was in secondary school and the sort of thing I remember again about that a bit like um, the sparrows talking about what they're eating and who's got tomatoes and stuff was the gossip about it. Mm. I, I know the story from tell, people telling it in retrospect, but I don't sort of have a memory of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I, re- I remember like, whoa, the pigs have escaped. It's happening here in Malmesbury. And then mo- someone told us that Malmesbury was on the TV in Australia. And we were like, whoa, I mean, that's it. We're famous now in this town. That's it. <laughs> they know about us in Australia. We've made it, guys. <laughs> Is it something that happened over, was it a short period of time or were they found, was it a long pursuit of, of uh, was it Butch and Sundance they were called? Yeah, I think it was Butch and Sundance and I think it was quite a long pursuit. So I think they escaped in sort of um, a couple of weeks into January and then uh, roamed around foraging up by um, what was Filands and now is the sort of, is Dyson has his big factory in the UK here. So that they were sort of foraging around out there for about a week, I think, um, in in the gardens and in the bush around by Dyson's. And I think they were on their way to the slaughterhouse is what I sort of remember, because there used to be a slaughterhouse in town, which I remember finding quite disgusting in the past. But now, in retrospect, I think it's probably really good to have a slaughterhouse in your town because it happens, everything's really local and it the meat doesn't have to travel very far and the animals don't have to travel far and the, the farmers probably have a relationship with the, with the abattoir owners and mm. it all sort of makes a bit more sense. But the abattoir used to be um, on, on the fields going out of town and we, you could smell it. You could smell the abattoir in the town and the street would run with blood uh, as uh, when they were doing the killing. They'd wash it out and it would run, run down into the gutters. And then they'd scatter, um, I guess it was sawdust on the blood to sort of soak it up, which is probably the same as like bread pudding, really, blood and sawdust. Sounds a bit, the the streets running with blood sounds a bit yeah. um, biblical, doesn't it? Yeah, There's it something does. quite biblical about yeah. it. And then two pigs escaped <laughs> from the back of their truck. And that, but that's what did happen. The two pigs were on the way to the slaughterhouse and they jumped out of the truck. Um, and then rumour has it that they swam across the River Avon uh, into the fields and into other people's gardens it was like they knew they knew it was the end for them so they they were I think they were brother and sister as well I don't know I don't know if that's true I think they were brother and sister I think Butch was the lady pig and Sundance was the man pig so they escaped and it's quite a long journey it's probably about a mile from where the abattoir was to to Dyson's up sort of up the hill 
so they they made a good journey past the primary school, past the tennis courts, past the new housing estate, through Dyson sort of high security complex, crossed the road and into the, another housing estate, which is where they they hung out for a week. And and I think what we heard was that um, there were hundreds of journalists, is what everyone was saying. Hundreds of journalists. I don't know if that's true, because I never saw any journalists hiding in the bushes and in people's gardens, trying to spy on the pigs. And the, the owner of the pigs was a guy who lived in town or lived locally, who was um, a road sweeper and worked for the council. And he just wanted to get the pigs off to the slaughterhouse to get his money. But then there was this sort of public outcry. You know, these pigs, they're fantastic. Look at the audacity of them. We've got to save them from, from being killed, from being turned into sausages. And apparently, yeah. So then I think there were sightings of the pigs. The journalists, the hundreds of journalists were running around in the gardens, in the bushes, trying to follow the pigs. And I think the Daily Mail like bought exclusive rights to the to the pigs they were like right we're gonna buy them we're gonna own these pigs they're ours now no other journalist can photograph the pigs and then i think the pigs were caught after about a week but i imagine that pigs up in the gardens up there might have done quite a lot of sort of destruction um because i think pigs make a lot of mess they do a lot of they do yeah yeah, they're um nosing around yeah so i i don't know i don't know how they caught them but um the the sort of rumor in the town was that um i don't know one was caught and then the other one couldn't be caught it was too tough and um they were trying to catch it and they like fired a dart or something off i don't know from a dart gun onto the pig it bounced off the pig got away again and they had to fire a couple more sort of tranquilizing darts and then apparently the pig was was tranquilized and caught but they weren't they weren't sent to the slaughterhouse they were the daily mail was paid for them to be kept i don't know where but kept alive somewhere as a as a visitor attraction <laughs> come and see the infamous too oh that's yeah exactly a, that's such a beautiful way of ending it because it would be yeah. it would be nothing worse than than just being like shipped <laughs> back into the abattoir like yeah God, I think the nation would have would have rioted. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In Australia, they'd have been coming over here. <laughs> and then I remembered hearing that um, a, a lobster had escaped from the local hotel. <laughs> As if, like, following in Butch and Sundance's uh, trotters. Like, right, if they can do it. So can <laughs> yeah. And then the lobster was, like, chased down the high street. But I don't know any more about that. Oh, yeah. It just, it, it just sounds like all the animals decided, no, it's our time, we're yeah. out here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. probably flooding is probably the biggest thing that's affected everybody because we're a town surrounded by rivers it's this hilltop town and then there's sort of rivers that circumnavigate the town and most of the time that's really lovely because you can do a walk around the bottom of the hill following the rivers Mm. it's very pleasant um strangely there's two rivers they're both called the avon which apparently just means river in Celtic. So there's the <laughs> Shurston Avon and the, I don't know, Chippenham Avon. I don't know which one is which, but my dad does. So 
it's the when those rivers flood it really is very bad and there's a system of flood wardens that are meant to alert people but yeah just i think just this year there were big floods and um here we're at the bottom of the hill um and it came up into our garden from the stream about 10 feet into the garden for us it, it wasn't bad for us we were lucky because we didn't have anything at the bottom of the garden about four or five cars got I guess they call it totaled un- unusable when the water gets into the mm. engine so that was I think that's very scary and there's some houses that um get t- just flooded every year and they can't get where Dr Pickering used to live they you can't get insurance on the house because it's it's on the water it's a mill house and it's just on the water so it just floods each year and I think in 2012 there was maybe the worst worst rain that they've had and we weren't here then um but we saw pictures on the BBC and it was at the bottom of the high street coming down the hill um there's a road called St John Street and people were canoeing to get to their houses oh my word yeah so I think that's I think that's the big the big sort of scary thing that happens and is it kind of expected yeah. every year? Has it become a thing? Because I imagine yeah. if you know it's going to come, it's it doesn't really take the stress away. But there's a yeah. a, a feeling of like right preparedness. Prepare. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think there is, and I think that's this Wiltshire Council system of like um, triaging the information about when the flooding is going to come to these these wardens. Um, that are at the different points and their job is they'll get a call from in the middle of the night from from the council and then their job is to call the other houses that are at risk of flooding and wait and bang on the doors of the of the people to wake them up and say move your car you've got to move it now and I know we came we came in in our van on the on the day of the floods this year and we were like oh this is fantastic there's all these car parking spots these car parking is the hot <laughs> topic we we're like oh never had one on st john street before boom in there and we went over to see my parents that evening they were like oh yeah did we say a four cars got totaled on st john street last night and then we were like right run back over and and move the button from there um but i think you're right people are more prepared now and there is a system of which i really don't understand to do with the weird like monitoring the weirs in some way there are people whose job it is to open sluices to let the water flow in different places and and divert it from different ways. I don't know if it worked or not, but there's all these rumours. Ray Sanderson's got the keys. So <laughs> I thought this was like a code word. Ray Sanderson's got the keys. Yeah. <laughs> what happens to people whose houses are flooded? Are they do they have to move out to somewhere else? Or? Yeah, I think people move upstairs is what they say. And what you do is you just if you know you get flooded every year, you just make sure you've got a stone floor and that you keep everything high enough you don't have any sockets down low you keep everything up high and you have a system that you just put everything up on shelves very quickly and you can just live upstairs until it goes down if your village was a dessert yeah what would it be whoa um well I was, I was just thinking about the, the shape first of all because like I said it's a, like a hilltop town so it's sort mm. of going upwards so my initial thought was like um well it's also because I've been really fancying this um where you have like meringue and then um cream and then another meringue and cream and then some some fruit on top like a, a like an eaten um, mess yeah exactly mm. yeah but it's not I mean the town is gray the town is really gray stone so <laughs> 
<laughs> like a grey eaten mess. <laughs> Just add some food colouring. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, if you don't mind me asking, um, yeah. is there anything that you've learned about yourself or about the village since kind of going into lockdown? Anything that you've become aware of? I guess, yeah, a couple of things I would say. Um, I think one of them is that Malmesbury is the thing I care about most. More than theatre, which is pretty high up there for me, but uh, yeah, more than theatre. I was like, I can look after this community in Malmesbury and I, I can spend my energy doing that, but I, uh, and I don't really care about theatre in this time of crisis. We don't need it now, but we do need each other and we do need um, contact. I guess I, that's a bit, it sounds really harsh to say that. Um, we definitely need art, but theatre didn't feel like a relevant thing to me because we can't mm. do it now. And so I thought the connection between the, I guess I was thinking about communities and like which community can you put your energy into? And I think some people might have the energy to put it into the theatre community to keep that sort of sort of spiritually alive when when it can't happen and and I thought I'm going to choose to put my energy into the sort of the the community of the area mm. and and I, I yeah I guess I realized that in a in a, in a moment of choice it, with time being the limiter um it was the the physical community that I chose mm. so that that I think that was my big realization that that's where I wanted to put my energy. I'm slightly resentful about it sometimes when you feel like, oh God, it's so much work or whatever and um, trying to take care of lots of people and stuff. But at the same time, I think I'm happy with that, that choice. Mm. I, think, I think I would have felt guilty not to be keeping an eye on the people on the street and not to be checking in with lots of people. I hope that there is not a new normal. I hope that there is an old normal. Because I think that normal changes every day for everyone and every second that happens, there is another second and that changes the normal. So there is a new normal all the time. But if, there, if we, if we, it, I really hope that in the new normal that happens after the lockdown, I'm really looking forward to having a beer in a pub. Mm. A, a big one, but pints, not a little <laughs> one. Not one of those half pints, none of that. No, no, big, big whole one. Mm. Yeah. Malmesbury really is a town bursting with nearly unbelievable stories. Having just made a show about the witches of Biddeford, our ears pricked up when Sydney mentioned the untold story of the witches of Malmesbury. So who better to tell that story than the man who literally wrote the book on them? Hi, Tony. Hi. Could you just describe where you are right now? I'm in Malmesbury in Wiltshire, sitting in my study in uh, our house, which is in the, the old town of Malmesbury. If I stand up, I can see a fantastic uh, view. We look out um, over the countryside, actually. It's great, this part of Malmesbury. It's, it's still within its medieval uh, boundaries, and we're on the line of the old wall. So we look out over the Wiltshire countryside. Mm-hmm. 
we've kind of noticed that there's been quite an explosion in people talking about local history and witches in particular. I suppose I'm just wondering why you think there may have been a, a peak in people kind of kind of re-exploring this history. I, I don't know quite why that is. Uh, mm. There is something about witchcraft that fascinates people. I think there's a, a greater, I guess, awareness now than there used to be of the gender issues that are behind some of these stories and just... Mm greater uh, awareness of the way in which women in various ways have been you know mistreated historically and and this it all kind of comes together doesn't it in lots of these stories Mm -hmm. of these poor marginalized vulnerable women who are you know literally demonized by the rest of society and by the church and the you know the so-called respectable folks there's something about that story that kind of uh, you know shocks people today Mm -hmm. So firstly, we wondered if the witches were a well-known piece of history in Malmesbury. No, until I had a look, there was some vague uh, awareness that there was a witchcraft story associated with Malmesbury, but not much was known about it. So how was this long-lost story finally uncovered? A man called James Long had written a book about the event um and uh and i looked that up and it's you know you can look it up on wikipedia and it says oh yes he wrote a book but the book has been lost and i i thought oh that's a that's a pity and then i did um, a google search of Malmesbury witches and uh, ridiculously i found the book um oh brilliant uh, I, fa- I found <laughs> the lost book the author of the book james long was a magistrate who actually interrogated the women before they were sent off to trial in 1672. He wrote about the witch trials, but the book was never published. Until 160 years later, in the 1830s, when a local historian got his hands on a fragment of the book and sent it to be published in a London periodical called The Gentleman's Magazine. Tony continues to share what was discovered from this fragment of James Long's book. It's reasonable to conclude that he's, his story is an accurate story. But it is a story, it's got a particular narrative, which is partly about him, James Long. So he's the kind of hero of the story. Mm. And he turns up in the town. He, he lived a few miles away. He was a local magistrate. And he was called for to come to the town because the town's in uproar in uh, early 1672. Um, and there are very ac- various accusations going on about the uh, relating to the local witches. And uh, when he arrives, um, he says that 13 or 14 of them had been arrested and they were going to be sent off to Salisbury. And he says uh, it was chaos, but fortunately I was there and I was able to impose order on the chaos and sort things out and ascertain that of the 14, there were only three, he says, against whom the evidence was really strong. So I ordered that they should be sent off to Salisbury for trial. And he names them. They were Judith Witchell and Anne Tilling and Elizabeth Peacock. And he makes it clear that the leader of the Malmesbury Coven in the eyes of her accusers was this woman, Elizabeth Peacock. You stand accused of many wrongs the court would like to lay them out in the form of a song your misdemeanors you can't deny 
throughout the streets of Biddeford, you've cast your evil eye. So gather round townspeople and solemnly raise your hand. Tell the truth and nothing but as you take to the witness stand. But there was a backstory of decades of resentment on the part of the respectable people of town towards this group of you know, so-called witches. And that the chief accuser of 1672 was a woman called Mary Webb, who back nearly 30 years earlier had been involved in another witchcraft hysteria. When she was a little girl, she accused a woman of bewitching her father's house. Mm. Uh, that woman, Goodwife Orchard, was eventually hanged at Salisbury as a result of the testimony of the little girl. And a curse was put upon her by the friends of Goodwife Orchard. And she lives for decades in fear of the witches by the 1670s. She's a woman in her late 30s. She's got children. She's married to a very prominent local businessman. And they think that the witches are out to get them and out to get their, their children. So that's the story that James Long tells. Oh, interesting. So it's almost this, this paranoia that's kind of followed her through her yeah. life. Yeah, definitely. It's really sad and dark. Amazingly, there is another uh, good source. So there's something called the Jail Book of Salisbury that, that lists all the charges. The charge sheet is uh, it's quite detailed. And a fourth woman appears called Elizabeth Mills. So there's four of these women who are on trial. And they're charged basically with a series of offences, including the... Um, uh, the bewitching of the children of Mary and Robert Webb, and several of their kids have supposedly supposedly been harmed through their um, their black magic. They're accused also of killing some of the horses of uh, a local gentleman uh, called Henry Denning and Elizabeth Peacock. But only Elizabeth is accused of killing and murdering by witchcraft three girls. So there's a whole series of charges, but the single most serious charge, I mean, they're all serious, but the only one who's actually accused of having killed anybody is Elizabeth Peacock, and she's accused of killing these, these four girls. And you can track down some of these uh, girls in the burials register, and one of them had died actually four or five years earlier, and the, the, the vicar had, had written she died suddenly. So obviously the, the, this has been going on for years, this this simmering antagonism towards uh, Elizabeth Peacock. James Long um, tells the story of how in 1672, it all kind of explodes because one of them confesses and Tilling confesses and she accuses everybody else. And Anne's confession, uh, Long gives, and he says that Anne Tilling explained that they were organised into a coven of nine witches, organised into three threes, and that they sometimes met all together, all nine of them, and sometimes they met separately in their threes, and they had three or four uh, accomplices who helped them, including a couple of blokes. And so there's some interesting uh, detail in, in his, his account. So there were these four women who were bundled off to Salisbury Jail and who waited for the arrival of the Assize judges. Hang her, burn her, she's a cursor. Send her down and see if she'll drown. There's no maybe, she has no baby, she's a witch. She's a witch!
by this point, um, although there was still lots of belief in witchcraft and lots of accusations of witchcraft, that it was very difficult to get a conviction. Mm. And that the great majority of uh, women, they were mostly women who were accused of witchcraft uh, after the restoration of 1660, most of them were found not guilty. And they were found not guilty because the judges kind of refused to accept that the evidence was good enough and they directed the juries to find them not guilty. And so the execution of the Biddeford women and the execution of the Malmesbury women, two of them were executed. It was unusual by this by this stage. There's a kind of um, assumed narrative that, oh yes, it was all fading out then because you know science and modernity and rationality, that was coming along, wasn't it? And that's why it all eventually stopped. And actually it's not like that. There's, the story's just not like that. And um, my guys, John Aubrey and James Long, were also members of the Royal Society which still exists today. Um, and, you know, the, the leading scientists of Britain and the world are invited to become fellows of the Royal Society. So I'm interested in the fact that, that James Long, who was the persecutor of the Monster Witches, was a very active member uh, of the, um, the Royal Society. And his booklet, which was never published, but it was intended to show that you could reconcile modern scientific belief with belief in witchcraft. And he wasn't alone in that. Several of his colleagues within the Royal Society saw things in the same way. And the most distinguished of them all was Robert Boyle, who was the top scientist, you know, arguably in the world in this, in this period. And he was the top sort of luminary of the Royal Society. And he believed in witchcraft. He thought that you could reconcile modern science with, with, with witchcraft. Some of the folks in New England um, were very were clearly, you know, explicitly influenced by reading these these books in particular. So there's a direct connection between this scientific justification for witchcraft and the persecution of the women in uh, Salem in 1692. Direct connection. Oh, that's so interesting because you, I, I definitely was of the opinion that as soon as science was coming coming in and that the hysteria and the thoughts around witchcraft would die out, but to know that they kind of coincided with each other. Um, yeah. very fascinating um, yeah yeah i don't think it's the scientists who end the persecution of witches i think it's mm. the judges actually who in the end say no we're not we're not going to tolerate this i saw her with a tiny cat and this one's got a pointed hat she's been frolicking with a bat yes her cooking's much too rich she's got a birthmark it's really big she turns my fingers into twigs from the devil's pool she takes a swig yeah and she pushed me in a ditch she's really ugly but kind of hot she's a loner all those friends she's got she writes left-handed and she reads a lot oh i get it she's a witch Hang her, burn her, she's a cusser Send her down and see if she'll drown There's no maybe, she has no baby She's a witch, she's a witch For me, the most fine-tingling moment um, <laughs> was when I found in the record the, I found the will of Elizabeth Peacock. So, so I didn't explain that the, the four of them went, were put on trial, uh, but only two of them were found guilty. And uh, they were Judith Witchell and Anne Tilling. Uh, Elizabeth Peacock was found not guilty, and she was the chief suspect. And she came, she came home. She lived for two or three years and died in 1675, three years after the trial. So her sister was executed. This other woman was executed, but she, she survived. 
and she's buried in the uh, in Malmesbury Abbey, and she's entered into the burials register. She had a you know respectable Christian burial at this sort of epicenter of respectability in the town, the the Abbey the Abbey Church, and she left a will, which I think is like amazing that she left a will and that it survived. So for me, the most exciting moment was that I managed through looking at catalogues and things to work out that there was a that there was a will of somebody called Elizabeth Peacock. And I went to the records office in Chippenham and they, you know, they brought it out of the, the storeroom and gave it to me. And they wouldn't have done this like five years ago, six years ago. They wouldn't do that today because it's all just been digitized, which, mm. you know, quite right because that, you know, preserves the documents. But this was just before digitization. So they actually gave me this scrappy piece of paper, uh, which I was able to you know, hold in my hand, which Elizabeth Heathcock had held and on which she was illiterate. She put her mark. She's got nothing. She's got some sort of shack and her clothes and a bed. Those are the three things that she leaves. And she leaves her bed to uh, my kinsman, William Witchell, who I think must be the son of her executed sister. And that was was just, you know, like spine tingling, holding Elizabeth's will and reading those words and thinking, yeah, this is this is my Elizabeth because there's the Witchell connection. So. That was pretty special. That's amazing to be able to hold something from from all that time ago and know, oh, yeah, she wrote that. That's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of Elizabeth's resilience. And that she survived and that she was able to make a, a will. And it, this is me being fanciful, but I imagine this is a sort of act of defiance. Um, so I'm leaving a will. You know what? This is a state. It's a legal document. It's also a statement of, you know, Christian orthodoxy. Um, you know, I leave my soul to God and, and, and so on. So she's defying the people who were out to get her. And she's also saying, and you know what? I'm respectable. I'm a lady. I've made a will. I wondered if there was yeah. any um, kind of acknowledgement of the witches no. in Malesbury. Of they no. just kind of... Well, uh, no. And I think that's quite wrong, actually. I've seen pictures of that, that, that plaque in Exeter and um, I think it's good to mark these stories and these terrible experiences. And, um, but there is, there's nothing in Malmesbury. And I do occasionally say to people, hey, there should be some sort of memorial to these women. But uh, so far, I don't seem to have had much effect. Um, and I just wondered uh, if you had to leave Malmesbury at the drop of a hat, what would you miss the most? I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd miss the, the, the people. It's all about people, isn't it? But um, as someone who's become obsessed with the history of this place, uh, there is something about it. There's a sense of these countless you know, generations that you have here I've always loved very early in the morning in summer, if I was going to work very early for some reason, uh, just being able to walk up the middle of the high street with no cars, just me in the middle of the high street with this sense of the past. And actually, over the last few weeks, I've been able to do that a lot, walk up the middle of the high street. It's quite a good way of social distancing. Um, And just sort of taking in this sense of this place and its thousand years. Backstory. Well, 
that's kind of all my questions. Okay. Um, so it was so lovely to chat to you, Tony. Thank you so much. Pleasure. But yeah, uh, go and enjoy the beautiful Malmesbury sunshine. Yeah, um, great. All right, really nice to talk to you. Hope the project so goes really well. Thank you. Okay, all right. Cheers. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Tony is still petitioning for there to be a memorial dedicated to the accused witches in Malmesbury, just like the one in Exeter that he mentions, which is dedicated to the witches of Biddeford. In 2022, it will be the 350th anniversary of the Malmesbury witch trials, so we hope they are commemorated and recognised by then. We checked in with Sydney six and a half weeks after our chat and heard she had a very lovely birthday and went ahead with the slightly illegal picnic in the garden, as it was only one day before picnics were allowed, and happened to be serenaded by sparrows. We asked her what had changed since we spoke, with which she replied, What a big question! So much, yet nothing at all. To keep up to date with Sydney and her theatre company, The Last Baguette, visit their website at thelastbaguette.com. You have been listening to Stories from the Sticks by Scratchworks Theatre Company. If you enjoyed listening, please do spread the word. Subscribe, follow and share on social media or tell all your friends and family on the next Zoom chat or socially distanced occasion. We'd love to share these stories far and wide. Reviews and feedback are also greatly appreciated too. This is our first podcast, so we'd love to hear what you think. We'd like to say a huge thank you to Sydney and Tony for sharing their stories with us and to Martin and the Pound Arts Centre for all their support. Thank you to Rosie Hood for allowing us to play her song Furlong of Flight. You can find a link in the show notes to more of her music. And of course, thanks to Acast for hosting us. You can sign up to the Scratchworks mailing list to keep up to date with our news or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Stories from the Sticks is supported by Arts Council England. It was edited by Andrew Armfield and the music composed by Jack Dean. The original song, She's a Witch, was written by Scratchworks Theatre and Andrew Armfield and it's from our latest show, Hags, a magical extravaganza. Plus, if you're in need of an afternoon activity, we would like you you to creatively respond to the question if your town or village was a dessert what would it be send us your drawings paintings songs poems or even a picture of your homemade desserts and we will be sharing them on our website and social media platforms check them out as we've already had some delicious submissions episode four of stories from the sticks will be on its way very soon